First of all, Andrew, I want to point out to you that I've written a book set on Mars. Never been there either. <laughs> okay, I, I just had to be a smartass for a second there. Um, yeah, um, I've always been interested in Cleopatra. When I babysat for Darlene Kashgarov in Seldovia, uh, long, long ago and far away, I was a teenager in high school, she had some final recordings of Shakespeare plays, and one of them was Antony and Cleopatra. And I remember listening to that, and I mean, I was just enthralled by the character of Cleopatra. So, I mean, there wasn't a hell of a lot in the Seldovia Public Library, yeah, Cleopatra, but I never lost the interest. Welcome to the East Anchorage Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Gray. Dana Stabenow is one of the most prolific authors living and working in Alaska today. Born in Anchorage in 1952, she grew up in Cordova and Seldovia and earned her bachelor's degree in journalism at the University of Alaska in 1973. Unable to make a decent living as a new journalist, she took a job with the oil industry in Prudhoe Bay, just as construction on the pipeline was taking off, before earning her master's degree in creative writing at UAA. Since then, she has published over 35 books, most of which are crime fiction. Her first Kate Shugak mystery, A Cold Day for Murder, won the Edgar Award for Best Paperback Original in 1993. In 2007, Stabenow was named Alaska Artist of the Year in the Governor's Awards for the Arts and Humanities. Her 17th Kate Shugak mystery, Though Not Dead, received the 2012 Nero Award. She is also the author of the very popular Liam Campbell series about an Alaska state trooper working in the bush. Ms. Stabenow just published Theft of an Idol, her third in the Eye of Isis series, which takes place in ancient Alexandria, Egypt, and shines a new light on Cleopatra. Dana Stabenow, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Andrew. So I think I, I, I let you know this morning that um, I had listened to some interviews getting ready for this. And so I know that my initial questions for you, you've answered them, I would guess, probably um, many, 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 many times. <laughs> don't, even, don't even try to assign a number. <laughs> yeah. And so, I, I, you know, I don't want this to just be going through the motions for you. So I would love to um, not ask the same questions that you've been asked a million times. So I'm going to just, for my listeners, let you know that 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 there are many, many interviews available, um, and you can find them by Googling uh, Dana Stabenow, and um, you can listen. And so I'm going to try, hopefully, to add something new. Um, I want to start by just saying that I, I worked at the Barnes & Noble on C Street, C Street in Anchorage in 1998, and um, that's when I read the first Kate Shugart book. So um, you were uh, quite a sensation back in 1998 at the uh, Anchorage Barnes & Noble. Um, I'm sure you still are. But um, that, so I have known about you uh, for a while. And I'm very, very happy that you're here today. Thank you. So uh, you grew up with your mom um, uh, on a fishing tender is how the bio reads. I understand that you you uh, were born in Anchorage, started off in Cordova. Y'all eventually ended up in Soldovia. Yeah, I was. Um, I'm 70 years old, like everybody my age. I was born at the Providence Hospital, hospital, which at that time was at Ninth and L, and I was delivered by Doctor St. John along with everybody else my age. And um, shortly after that, my parents split up, and my mom moved to Cordova to for help from my grandparents. They were running the Windsor Hotel in Cordova at that time. And uh, shortly, we weren't there for very long, um, and then we moved to Seldovia. And then Mom was a deckhand on a fish tender, the Celtic, off and on for about five years. We were in Seldovia for, I don't know, I think a decade. And um, 
we were off and on the, the fish tender. When I say off and on, I mean in the winter, sometimes we spent ashore. And, and then some winters we spent on the boat. Um, from listening to one of the interviews, I know that you um, generally went to school on shore. Like, you know, your mom made it so that you could be at school. There was one, yeah, there was one summer, yeah, uh, there, sorry, there was one um, winter when she homeschooled me. We were um, uh, trapping, hunting and trapping in Prince William Sound, mostly on Montague Island. Did your grandparents, are they the original folks who made it up here? I mean, were they who moved here or how long, how far back? Yeah, my um, maternal, my my maternal uh, grandfather flew, grandparents flew in. On the he was uh, right seat on the first um, DC three that Alaska Airlines, after it became Alaska Airlines, flew into the state. They landed at Merrill Field on I can't believe I remember this date May twelfth nineteen forty five. Wow! <laughs> Merrill Field at that time was out of town. My grandmother used to just tell the stories about how fucked she was at the price of everything. Couldn't even buy a pork chop for what you could outside. <laughs> And then father, and then my father's family, um, his brothers, one of them was doing was fixing radios for the Navy and the Aleutian chain in the 30s. And that's how the family originally came up here. My father came up in a Liberty ship during World War II a couple of times and decided uh, Alaska was where he wanted to live. So he drove up with a friend, drove up, drove the Alcan back when it was not drivable. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Uh, I, I've talked to a lot of folks who, you know, grew up in Anchorage. Um, in the 50s and 60s, and they talked a lot about um, the price of things and the unavailability of fresh fruit and, you know, sort of only knowing that apples and oranges existed and not knowing that there were any other fruits. But I would imagine that you growing up in Soldovia would know about even less. Oh, God. There were three kinds of fruit. There were apples and oranges and bananas. The bananas were always rotten. The apples and oranges were always dry and pithy. And, you know, I, I, the only ice cream we ever had was, um, what was that? Metropolitan, where it was chocolate, vanilla, and, um, strawberry, right? So I thought I hated all of those things. <laughs> I never had any fresh milk until I went away to school at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks and they had fresh milk. Oh my God. I couldn't believe it. It was so good. Did you have any scary experiences on the boat growing up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure we we're going to die a couple of times. Or I remember there was one time we were coming around um, the Kenai Peninsula, what is now the Kenai Fjords, and it was a horrific storm. And the boat was literally going from like this one side to the other, one side to the other. It really scared my mom because she came downstairs. She couldn't find me. She came below. And Make sure you hadn't fallen off. Panicked. She, she just panicked. And she was screaming my voice and screaming my name. And then she found me under the galley table, under the center upright, because it was the lowest, you know, center of gravity on the boat that I could find the least motion. Mm -hmm. So I just wrapped myself around that. And I wasn't really even, like, communicating. So she went and she got a blanket and a pillow, and she put it with me. And then she went back up on the bridge. Wow. And so um, most of the time, was it just you and your mom on the boat? And mom and the skipper. The skipper. Yeah. Okay. And then in the summertime, we had to have deckhands, of course, because mm -hmm. the a fish tender would go out and pick up fish from the fishing grounds. They would bring groceries, water, 
and fuel to the boats who would stay out on the fishing grounds all summer long. And then we'd take the fish back to the canneries. This was in the time when Seldova, before the earthquake, when um, Seldovia had uh, five salmon canneries. Wow. So Seldovia was really different than what we visit today. Oh, yeah. Completely different. Yeah. And also a little bit gorgeous. It was gorgeous then and it's gorgeous now. Right. It is so places. now. Like, I mean, when I think about you being in Soldovia, I'm like imagining like just this teeny tiny town. But it sounds like there was, at least with the five canneries, there was a lot more workers there during that yeah. season. In particular, and, and Soldovia, like everywhere else in the summer, you know, they would come up to work with the fish. And then things changed a little bit toward the end of the 60s because Lowell Whitfield um, built a king crab uh, cannery there. And of, it, it, that was. I mean, that was a king, that was the gold rush all over again, only with king crab. Because you started reading at the Soldovia Library, or that's where you kind of mm-hmm. had your love for books. And in my mind, I was like, there's a library in Soldovia? You know, um, what was the library in Soldovia? The library was one room in the basement of City Hall. And um, it was started by the local postmistress. Her name is Susan Block English. And the library was her, I would say, avocation, and the being postmistress was her vocation. And um, she, it was just, it was one room. There was a fiction section, there was a nonfiction section, and there was a kid section. It was open one night a week from seven to ten on Mondays, and you could only take out because there were so few books. You could only take out four books at a time. So uh-huh. when, when I was, I think I was seven or eight, maybe somewhere around there. She decided it was time that I'd moved on from picture books. And so she hauled me up the ladder. I remember it distinctly. Down, It was in October, and we went down to the library on a Monday night. And she introduced me to Susan, and that was it. <laughs> you met your dad when you flew to Anchorage for a dental appointment. Yeah, there was no dentist in Homer or Seldovia. Mm-hmm. No, and- no dentist in the Bay, so you had to go to Anchorage. So tell us a little bit about that. And I mean, how did your dad know you were coming and, and how did that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, just for our listeners, I mean, you met him when you were. Yeah, no, I met him for the first time then. I was 14 years old and my teeth were a mess. And uh, mom said, okay. And so she called dad and said, uh, Dana's coming to Anchorage to go to the dentist. And by the way, you're paying for it. <laughs> and so. I have to say, he was great. He was terrific. I mean, I'd never gotten so much as a birthday card from this guy. And um, uh, I got off the plane in um, Anchorage, and he'd marched the whole family out to say hi. He was married again and had I mean, had kids. So you had like half siblings. Yeah. Are you close with them? No. And um, he was a bush pilot, correct? Oh, yeah. Not, prof- not uh, I never know how to say this. I'm always being schooled by bush pilots who say to me, yes, your dad was a bush pilot, but he didn't fly for gain. He flew for hunting. He flew for fun. He was the most amazing flying um, beachcomber you ever met in your entire life. Um, I have a photograph of him on a beach somewhere in, uh, in Southwest uh, with just like hundreds, literally, of all different sizes of glass balls in back of him, many of which he brought home. <laughs> wow. And I'm he he um he he started he was late becoming a pilot. He built a boat first and then he got tired of that and so he started flying. And that was late. Like how old was he when he started flying? Uh, I think he was about I think he was in his forties. I think. I'm pretty sure he was in his forties by then because after I met him. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you've got a lot of details about planes and piloting in, in your books. Did you get that from your dad or did you get that? Oh my God, it's not just dad. My yeah. two of my cousins are pilots. My two, two of my best friends are pilots. I, it, I mean, there, I, you can't be in Alaska and not know pilots, you know, right. and you can't be in Alaska and not fly. Impossible. I mean, right. I suppose you could if you lived in Anchorage, but oh, yeah. in Anchorage and you never left town. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I've been in little planes and, 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 you know, so I, I, I hear where you're coming from. However, there are characters in your book that talk about being in a small plane for the first time. So you've definitely tried to capture that experience. Always. <laughs> yeah. There was a story in the Homer news it was right back after I moved to Homer. I think so it must've been around 20, uh, 2005. And someone was relating their experience getting on at that time. It was era. Now it's Raven. Um, era and they climbed onto the plane they'd just gotten off a big jet from outside and they were coming to homer to visit relatives and so they got off the big jet and they got on the small plane and alaskans wouldn't consider it a small plane i think it was a twin otter and so they get and they sit down and they look up for the first time they say oh my god you can see the pilots Well, not only that, I, I mean, I'll just say the first time I flew on Raven, you know, you don't go through security and people can take their guns on. And um, I think that would be something that would um, freak out folks from the lower 48. Yeah. Oh, I'm as certain as I'm sitting here, Andrew, there's somebody packing on every small flight I take. <laughs> we all stuff. Yeah. So where'd you graduate from high school? Seldovia. Oh, wow. What was the, what, how many were in your class? Five. <laughs> <laughs> including me <laughs> and then you went to fairbanks for college i first i went to anchorage the first two years i went to alaska uh, anchorage community college i mm. i don't know if you're familiar but it was at anchorage community college and then um to get my four-year degree in journalism i had to go to complete it in fairbanks so the second two years, I went to Fairbanks University of Alaska in Fairbanks at the same time that the Anchorage Community College was transitioning into the University of Alaska Anchorage. Now, I know this question has been asked a lot, and I just listened to your interview with Kathleen McCoy from last year where she talked about it. But just to be clear, I mean, explain why journalism and what your thoughts were. Well, um, my high school teachers, Ken Cash and Glenn Winkleweck, both of them, two of them, um, pushed me toward journalism because they thought that was how I could make a living. So, and the reason I like journalism so much is because I got to travel with the basketball team. Because, you know, if you're the editor of the school newspaper, you had to report on away games. So I got to, I got to go to, you know, exotic places like Ninilchik and Kiai with the basketball team. I mean, who was going to turn that down? And, um, I, I kind of know the history, but just for our listeners, you, uh, Tell us about the time from graduating with a degree in journalism to going back to get your master's. Um, I worked on the slope mostly. I, um, I was when I graduated with my in seventy three with my journalism degree. That was when the uh, Trans Alaska Pipeline construction on the Trans Alaska Pipeline was coming back gangbusters. You know, it had been frozen from sixty nine to seventy three, and then finally they screwed around. They unscrewed themselves enough to pass ANCSA, and then kaboom, everything started again. Well, 
people flooded in from everywhere, all over the world, not just in South 48, for jobs. And there were there was almost no place to live. There you you they the only people that were playing paying halfway decent wages were contractors for the soap. I mean they were in the Anchorage Times and you were like making $800 a month or something. I, I was never with the Anchorage Times. Okay, sorry. I, yeah, I um, uh, looked for a job there and the only job I could find with the Anchorage Times was as a copy editor and it paid about $830 a month. You couldn't rent a place for the take home on that amount. So I looked elsewhere and I have to say too, Spirit of Adventure, you know, all the news oh, yeah. is from the slope. I wanted to see what was going on up there. So eventually I went to work for Aldiask Pipeline um, at Galbraith Lake Pipeline Camp. And I was there for about three and a half, four months. And then um, that was enough of that. And then came back came back and applied at uh, BP to work for them in Prudhoe Bay. What did you do? Hired me. Sorry? What did you do? Well, they hired me. Well, let me see. What did I do? I was the um, camp clerk at Construction Camp 1. I was there for about three weeks when they decided, nope, I was I belonged over at base camp. So they moved me to base camp. I was the um, clerk there that basically just checking people into their rooms and making sure everybody had clean sheets and that the kitchen knew how many people were coming to dinner that night, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, then they found out that I had a, a radio telephone operators permit, third class, from being on the boat so I could uh, t- uh, take radio schedules. Mm-hmm. And so they decided, no, I was going to be a communications operator. Well, that was really fun. I loved that. And then they found out <laughs> a degree in journalism, and they were tired of pulling people off jobs to um, tour people around because, Andrew, everyone from all over the world came to see what they were doing at Prudhoe Bay. When I say everyone, I mean everyone. I mean Arabs from Saudi Arabia would come and see how we, we were doing it in the Arctic compared to how they did it in the desert. Um, just, I mean, it was everyone. Uh, every, certainly every elected politician in Washington, D.C. and Juno came up. And um, so they got tired of pulling people off their real jobs to tour these guys around. So they decided that they would hire two people, one on each shift, to be what they called the, what the hell was it? We were the tour guide. That was what we were. We were tour guides. I can't remember. They had some fancy name for it. It was the information services coordinator. That was me. (laughs) You know, I'll just volunteer that as a recently um, elected official myself, I was just offered a trip to Prudhoe Bay to tour around. So they're still doing it. Uh, I, I, I... I couldn't go. It, it conflicted with my schedule, but I was invited. Uh, speaking as a constituent, Andrew, I mean, not as a constituent of yours, but say, as an Alaska voter, you really do need, all our money comes from there. You need to go up there and you need to see it. You need to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, you went and got your master's. I did. Uh, Mid 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, in uh, an MFA in creative writing. Yeah. I'd been up on the slope for six years and, you know, it was time to fish or cut bait. Could I, you know, was I going to, I did a little bit of writing, but. Was it a dream of yours, like all along to be a writer? It was never, it wasn't really, it, I thought I was going to be a journalist because basically all my teachers pushed me that way. They, and you could make a living doing this. Well, when I graduated, I realized I had no ability. About five seconds afterwards, I realized I had no ability to ask the hard question. You have to ask, be able to ask the hard question. My mother was an extremely private person. And she imbued that with me. I mean, you don't get in people's private business. You don't ask intrusive questions. Well, you have to if you're a journalist. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's part of the job, and I couldn't do it. 
So that was another reason why, you know, I lost orbit and, you know, wandered off. Um, and then it was just time to see what I could do with this ability that I have. And I do have the ability to put together a simple declarative sentence and tell a story. So I thought, okay. And they had just started the um, creative writing program at the University of Alaska in Anchorage. And I thought, okay, now's the time. And I had enough money. So. So you did it. Um, and um, I guess it, it I, I, the question that I posed is, do you think you could have done it without that program or how, or, or did the program just sort of make you start doing it? Um, mostly I was revisiting skills that I had had and didn't have anymore because I'd been gone from the academic world for so long. I needed two things. I needed to remember how to write on deadline, journalism degree, very useful for that, and how to research journalism degree, also very useful for that. And I have to say that... Um, both of those things, I definitely got that in spades from um, for my MFA degree. It was very useful indeed. I had just read, I've read a little bit about the controversy and about the explosion of MFAs in creative writing and lots of authors coming out and saying, I never did any MFA program, you know. Yeah, it doesn't put me above anybody. It doesn't make me a better writer than anybody. It was useful to me personally at that time in my life, period, end. I don't think you have to have an MFA to be a successful writer. Come on. Right. No, I gotcha. Um, and uh, I wanted to to jump ahead a long way to Story Knife um, because I was wondering, I was kind of trying to make the connection be between what the MFA program served for you and maybe what you're trying to have Story Knife serve for others. And I could be wrong in trying to make that connection, but if you could just explain to people what Story Knife is and, and, and what its goal is. I am always happy to talk about Story Knife, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you for that invitation. Um, uh, the thing that was seminal, the one, the seminal event in my life as a writer was being accepted to the only other retreat for women writers in the world, um, which was Hedgebrook. It's on Whidbey Island in Puget Sound. Uh, the Anchorage Daily News ran a story. I think it was an Associated Press story about Hedgebrook. And my best friend, Kathy, called me and she said, are you going to apply? And of course, I didn't imagine for a moment that they would accept me. I didn't have anything published yet. And my manuscripts were turning from New York like little homing pigeons. And she just, you know, annoyed me until I finally, just to get her to shut up, I went ahead and applied and they took me. And for two weeks, I was in this beautiful cabin, all my own, in this beautiful setting, where I was expected to do nothing but write. And that was my work. I, I, the first night I was there, you know how when you go to somebody's house for dinner, you get up to help clean the table? Mm -hmm. the, the person who started Story Night, her name's Nancy Nordoff, she looked at me and she said, sit down. You've already done your work for the day. And that's, it's the first time anybody ever acted around me like writing was a real job. So I left when I, it, it was, everything good happened to me after Hedgebrook. I'm not saying that some of that stuff wouldn't have happened anyway, but everything good, I'm sorry, it just did. I sold my first book. I sold my first multi-contract, multi but multi-book contract. I, got, I won the Edgar Award. I, everything good happened after Hedgebrook. And I left Hedgebrook with such a weight of obligation. I mean, there was no way after Hedgebrook I was going to fail as a writer. <laughs> just... I just was not going to do that. 
And I always have been, I've been looking forever for some way to give back because there's only six cabins at Hedgerook and that's not enough. They can have as many as 1,400 applications for 42 spaces in a single semester. And so when the time came, I, I was always going to move back to the Bay, to Cashmack Bay. And I found this property and I thought, okay, let me see. I talked to my builder. I said, do you think we could do a Hedgebrook up here? His name's Scott uh, Bauer. And there's no way I would have been able to do this without him. He was a true believer from the beginning. He looked at me, he said, let's do it. And that was in 2000, August of 2005. And it took me until 2019 to get enough money to start building. And we would have opened in 2020 except for COVID. And, uh, but we had our first full year in business this year. Our second year in business, our first full year, seven months. And um, every cabin was filled almost straight through the year. And the things that the writers are saying are the things that I thought when I was at Edgebrook. It gives them confidence and clarity. I have the writers up to my house for dinner one night every month. Their stay is a month long. And one of them looked at me and she said, I know now. This is what I am meant to do. I mean, we could do that for 42 women, 48 women. Depends on whether they stay two weeks or four. Every year, for as long as I'm alive, for as long as Star Knife exists, I'll die a happy woman. I will have had purpose in this world. I'm sorry that was really long. No, and congratulations. I actually didn't realize that you'd just done your first full year. So um, congrats. We did, we did five months in 2021 because we were still nervous about COVID. Oh, and of course, the Delta variant hit in, uh, was it July, late July, right, right. Which, kind of, which really impacted our numbers in um, August, September, and October. But this year, we had a full year, all seven months, April to the end of October. Can you... Explain why having it be only women matters. Um, I'll tell you what Scott Gear, our builder, said to or not Scott Gear, excuse me, Scott Bauer. I have too many Scots of my life. Scott Bauer said this um, to me. He, he, I was trying to explain. He asked that very question, and I was trying to explain it to him, and he stopped me midway. He looked at it, and he said, I get it. You don't want it to be a college dorm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh- now, women need women need the support. Still, even in this world, even in this world where you think we're so modern and we're so up to date and and we have come so far, and all of those things are true, but women are still underpublished. They are still underreviewed. They are still underprinted. They're still undersold. They 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 don't get anywhere near the attention or resources that they need. And you know, Stern Knife isn't the answer to all of that, but it's a small part of the answer. They're valued. They're supported. All they have to do is get themselves to Homer, and they have a place to stay. They have food made for them every day. They have a beautiful view. You know, this it is really making a change in their lives, and they're going to go home and write more. Well, I have a, a, a couple of observations. Uh, we had a freshman legislator orientation recently, and one of my female colleagues was talking about how she really liked this male colleague, but that he insisted on mansplaining things that she was an expert on. Um, and the second phase, and so, so I could see how in a co-ed environment that you might have uh, uh, a male writer or two who uh, wants to kind of hold forth and explain to the ladies how it's done. Yeah. Another thing I would say is that I... And I could, I, this is a stereotype, but you know, when you talked about trying to clear the table, um, when, when, you know, when you went to the, the women's only uh, writer workshop back in the That's early right. 
Hedgebrook. Yes, that um, I, I'm guessing that there would probably be some male writers who didn't need to be told that it was a job and would happily sit and let their plates be cleared for them. Yeah, there's plenty of writers retreats. They're all almost all of them mixed gender. So, and there there um, there have been stories. Let us just say I won't relate them now because they're not my stories to tell. The only writers retreat I've been to was to Hedgebrook. That's my only experience. But there are plenty of stories of women who have been to mixed gender retreats where let's just say their stay has not been as felicitous as it might have been and certainly isn't as felicitous as it is at Hedgebrook. Any way you slice it, you've been doing more, on average, more than one book a year, which I think for many, many authors is uh, that, that, that that's a lot of writing. When you're first starting out and, you know, you're just happy that any publisher spells your name correctly on the cover of a book, mm -hmm. um, you'll do anything they say. And they wanted two books a year. And two so books a year. Wanted two books a year. I mean, it was this, I, I actually wrote an article about this. I mean, I've started um, just recently, just like in the past year, posting about the writing experience to Savino.com to my blog. For any aspiring authors out there who are listening, um, I do have a few things to say. Um, and one of those things is, this is how... I wound up being able to write two books a year. Um, I got the contract and I've already written the first book in the series and they suddenly want two more and they have due dates. And it's like all the hair on my head just went, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. First of all, when I was writing the first book in the series, the K2VX series, mm -hmm. I didn't know I was writing a series. So I had it rammed out. You know, I never would have killed one of the main characters at the end of the first, the end of that first book, if I'd known that I was going to be writing 23 so far of them. Right. And so, God, I, 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 okay, so I have to write two books this year. One is due on this date. One is due on the other date. And I just, I mean, I was really panicking. And so I thought, okay, how are other writers doing it? So I went down to the book cache. I don't know if you're, you're old enough to remember the book cache. So there, was, it was, there were many book caches, but the original one was on Fifth Avenue next to um, uh, J.C. Penney. And um, so I went down there and I went to the crime section, which was just wire racks on the wall. And there was, I don't know, six or eight rows of them. And they were probably about 10 or 12 books, you know, deep. And I pulled down a dozen or more copies of them, and I looked at the back to see how many pages each of them had. So and, how many pages and then I went home, and I wrote down all the page numbers. And then I stopped at an office supply store on the way, Arctic office supplies, and picked up an annual calendar, and I took that home. And then I added up all the pages, I divided them by the numbers of books, and I came up with an average page count of 200 pages. So the books are going to be 200 pages long, and I had to get the job done in 200 pages. And then I looked at the calendar and decided how many pages I had to write every day to, you know, meet the first deadline of getting it to the author for mm -hmm. the, the, excuse me, the editor for review. Because then, you know, it was like a seven-step process back in those days. And back in those days, everything had to be mailed. Now you can just attach it to an email. Not right. Right. My postage, I can't even begin to tell you how much I spread in postage. Oh my gosh. I had read a New Yorker interview with Olga Tokarczuk, who is a Polish writer who won the 2018 Nobel Prize in Literature. And I had read her detective novel called Drive Your Plow Over the Bones, which she published, uh, Over the Bones of the Dead, the whole title, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead in 2019. And in it, she talked, uh, in that interview, she said that the detective novel was easy for her to write because the structure was there 
And she just had to figure out what components to hang on the structure. And that she could see how mystery writers could do sort of a, a faster pace because they have a structure. And really, she just had to decide what she wanted to use that structure to serve. Basically, that, that the point of the book is not necessarily the detective plot. What the point of the book is everything else that, 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 that the message that you're trying to deliver by using this vehicle of the mystery story was kind of how I interpreted her answer. And so my feeling as I was preparing for, for, you know, your interview and reading, you know, a couple of your books as fast as I could is that, um, you know, that the, 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 what you were serving was Alaska culture, that, that a very specific type of Alaska culture, because, you know, with the Liam Campbell series, I, I'm just going to throw it out there. It seems sort of like Dillingham um, with, uh, you know, with the Kate, with the Kate books, um, we're definitely uh, like Atna, like I, I know where you are a little north, north of Cordova, maybe like I, I, I know where you are. Uh, Yes. So that this sort of this rural Alaska experience, which is very uh, not typical for people who live in Anchorage, like you're 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 giving us something new as well. So I guess I wanted to ask, is that what you was that? Is that the message? Is that is that what you wanted to deliver? Definitely. Alaska is the main character of the Liam Campbell and the Kate Chuyak novels. It's also at least a, a ensemble, part of the ensemble cast of um, Blindfold Game, which is the first thriller I wrote about mm -hmm. the Coast Guard. It's, um, it certainly makes it some of my characters are from Alaska in the science fiction novels. Um, a lot of short stories, certainly the Alaska magazine, you know, articles. Mm -hmm. um, the... the uh, when you asked that question, it made me think of a conversation it was a, uh, I had had at an author event at the Poison Pen in Scottsdale. There was another writer there. Her name's Karen Auden. She writes very good Victorian uh, mysteries, FYI. And um, she put her hand up and she said, Dana, people have said that um, writers, and she was speaking more across the board than she was, you know, individual genres or even crime fiction that writers tend to write the same book over and over again. I was really taken aback by that. I mean, I, wh what did that mean? Did that mean that we were all phoning it in after we wrote the first book? And, you know, but I thought about it for a long, long time. And I've started reviewing the books, mm -hmm. the books. And I realized, first of all, that Alaska definitely is one of the main characters in the book. So anything that informs people about the character of Alaska, yeah. Sure, I'm going to be sharing that. And Alaska isn't all about Anchorage, even if most of us live there. Um, I'm trying so hard to find the, the, the name that you use for Wally Hickel. Um, oh, there are a lot of... Those are, those are Alaska. Those are Easter eggs for Alaska. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> Namon Alford. Yes. Yes. And um, Actually, and I wondered about this because in in, in uh, Nothing Gold Can Stay, which is a 2000 uh, Liam Campbell book, um, you say Pete Peterson, uh, spelled differently than Pete Peterson, who served in the legislature and is a current assembly member in Anchorage. But there, there's part of me that's like, this can't be an accident. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> there are, you can't do that, you know, if you're running for a global audience. And at this point, I am. You cannot do too much of that. But I never forget that Alaskans read my books, too, and that I'm going to give them something for making the effort. So I always do.
And this is kind of just a, a nuts and bolts question, but you know, um, not naming the cities or and, and changing the governor's name slightly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you didn't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, so why? I, I did that more in the beginning uh, okay. of the books. And then I didn't, because I didn't really, I didn't know what I was doing, frankly. Okay. And, you know, I, and also because it was fun to twist them around and yeah. it was fun to put those little, as I say, Easter eggs in the books for Alaskans to find, because I knew that everybody wouldn't get it, but some people would. And that was enough for me. Um, uh, the, the more books I wrote, the more confident I got. And um, the more I read, the more confident I got. So, I mean, people who have Donald Trump as walk-on characters in older books before he became president. I mean, that's that's informative right there. So certainly I can do that on a smaller scale in Alaska. Uh, how, I, I said from, from, you know, from cramming for the interview, I know, you know, your dad was a Bush pilot. I know that you wrote a column uh, of an Alaska, Alaska travel column, which got you the opportunity to travel to lots of uh, interesting places. But I mean, Bristol Bay in particular, how do you know that region so well? Um, I haven't spent that much time in Bristol Bay, but I sure have a lot of friends and family who have. Um, I've come from a commercial fishing background and they all fish over there. And dad, um, I flew with dad there. You know, we flew you know, probably the hemorrhoid we flew through Lake Clark Pass half a dozen times and um, 6-8 Alpha, where it was his 172, um, you know, so we were there a lot. And it just, um, it's a pretty amazing place. Yeah, look at and I mean, if you read the news reports during the fishing season from that place, holy cow. Right. There, it's an exaggeration to say this, but it's not far off. You could walk across Crystal Bay without getting your feet wet when all the boats are in the water. Mm-hmm. And did you have specific uh, friends and family that you would call to ask a specific question or, um, you know, and, and I guess this is more, again, just me learning, but, but, but because it's fiction, maybe you don't really have to call and ask them. Maybe you can just do it. Well, it, you know, it depends. Um, let me see what happened in, what did I do? Oh, um, yeah. I wanted to know how many hours uh, my I have a character who's a retired uh, state trooper in the Kate Chugak novels. He's retired now. And um, he uh, I was for some reason I was I can't remember why. Don't ask me, please. But I needed to know how many hours he had in the air. And I couldn't think. I didn't know. I'm not a pilot myself. So I called my friend Gary Porter. And he runs Bald Mountain Air out of, I, he's a, a, he and his dad and my dad were best friends. And he's a pilot of, he's a terrific pilot and um, has a gajillion hours and there's just nothing he doesn't know. So I called him and I said, okay, this, and I introduced him to the character of Jim. And I said, how many hours does he have? I think he has about this many. And he came right back at me and said, oh, no, no, he's got this many. And, you know. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, so I, you don't, that... It's, there's not that many people who would know the difference, but for the people who would know the difference, who are reading my books, I don't want to cheat them if I can possibly avoid it. I'm sure I make all kinds of goobers all on my own, where it would have benefited me to ask someone something. But um, where I can, I try to make sure I get it right. Okay. Well, I am not. I am an amateur journalist, and I don't like asking difficult questions. <laughs> But I'm going to try. Um, so 
you know, Kate is uh, an Aleut, and um, you have lots of Alaska Native characters throughout your books. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the question that I kind of posed that you and I had a little email back and forth about was about um, any criticism that you may have gotten as a white woman, you know, populating your novels and and, and main characters being uh, Alaska Native. I'm sure that there are people who are unhappy about it. Um, None of them have ever said anything to me. I'm not lying. That's the honest to God truth. Maybe I, you know, I just think maybe. (laughs) And I also, it astonishes me that I don't think it, I think it would be dishonest to write about Alaska without including Alaska Natives. Alaska Natives, they got here first. A, I think we can all agree on that. And B, they are at present the warp and the weft of the community up here. God almighty, when you drive or fly into Anchorage and you look up at at Fire Island and there's eight of those gigantic wind turbines there that are contributing to um, renewable energy all along the Alaskan road system, railboat, rail belt, those are built by Cook Inlet Native Corporation. I know the woman who was running Cook Inlet Native Corporation at that time. They are... All they are so integral and so important to the life of Alaska. I do not, I just don't, I just, and furthermore, I was raised in Seldovia with um, Aleuts Subpiak as uh, the proper name now, and Filipinos. And um, these are the people I knew best. They're still family. They're still friends. You know, I can't imagine not having... I can't imagine not writing an Alaska Native hero. Well, I, hey, you know, I'm going to just throw it out there. You're a woman. <laughs> You're not the first person who I've asked uh, a question about where I've said, some people have said or whatever, and I've gotten the pushback of like, who? Yeah. And I say, on social media. And oh, the response wow. is that, you know, that is not real life. Mm-hmm. But there are things that happen on social media that cause me to like feel like I have to ask a question about something that it probably isn't connected to real life. So I do believe that no one has ever asked you um, in real life. Uh, well, maybe it's that culturally Alaska Native just have better manners than everybody else. How about that? That's probably true. That's probably true. Um, so I had sent you some questions about where, where I was going to uh, read some, pa- have you read some passages from your book and then talk a little bit about it. And you let me know that you do not read uh, your work aloud. And um, so can you explain why you don't read your work aloud? There's this little internal editor who lives on my shoulder. And I mean, I do a lot of reading aloud while I am writing the book. And, you know, there's always this little voice from the book itself crying out as you send it in. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And then years later, when somebody like you asks me to read something and the little itinerant editor is right here reading over my shoulder as I'm reading out loud and I'm cringing and I'm wincing and I'm flinching and thinking, oh, my God, this is the worst, worst passage in English ever written by a human being with a pen. It's just incredibly uncomfortable for me. I'd rather read somebody else's work. Honestly, I really would. I'd like to talk a little bit about um, Though Not Dead, which I believe is your favorite. It's my favorite K2 novel so far. And that was 2012. <laughs> I'm going to tell... I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you that I am going... I'm not going to torture you by reading aloud from the book. Thank you. In front of you. But I'm definitely going to read aloud from the beginning of the book because it is amazing. 
Um, Dana Stabenow cannot hear me. I'm going to read from the beginning of her 17th Kate Shugak mystery, Though Not Dead. 1918, the The Black Death didn't get to Alaska until November. When it did, it cut down almost everyone in its path. The territorial governor imposed a quarantine and restricted travel into the interior, stationing U.S. marshals at all ports, trailheads, and river mouths to interdict travel between communities. He issued a special directive urging Alaska natives to stay at home and avoid public gatherings. Theaters closed, churches canceled services, schools were let out, but because of the inescapably communal nature of traditional life, natives were infected and died disproportionately. In Brevik Mission, only eight of 80 people survived. In some villages, there were no survivors at all. When the influenza pandemic passed late the following spring, those left alive were too weak to hunt for food, and even more died of starvation. In Niltna, in March 1919, Chief Lev Kukesh and his wife Alexandra froze to death because they were too sick to get up and feed the fire in their wood stove. Four miles up the road at the Kainanuk Mine, mine manager Josiah Greenwood lost his wife and both sons and one out of four of his workforce. Some of the uninfected turned to predation and thievery. Harold Halverson was beaten to death in a fight over his last bag of flour. Bertha Anilon was assaulted in her own bedroom and died of her injuries two days later, alone in the bed in which she had been attacked. The offices of the Kanuyak mine were broken into half a dozen times, the cash box stolen, the glass case housing the cross of gold nugget shattered, and the nugget gone, the company files rifled and set on fire. Toilets and refrigerators were ripped out of mine workers' homes as residents lay on their beds with no strength to resist. Food, clothes, photographs, personal papers, and jewelry vanished, most never to be recovered by their owners. Empty homes where entire families had died were stripped and abandoned. Cemeteries overran their boundaries. After seeing their last living family member into the ground, many survivors left for Fairbanks or Anchorage or even outside. Village populations, halved by the epidemic, were halved again by immigration. When I started reading it, I thought, she must be, this must be her COVID novel. She's writing this. So how do you feel about those first two pages from the vantage point of 2022, as opposed to when you wrote them? Um, (laughs) I actually didn't take the pandemic, the flu pandemic, as my template. I took the Black Plague of 1350 as as my template. I think partly because Alaska Natives refer to the flu pandemic as the Black Plague, as the Black Death. And the, or they have in my presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the things that happen, I mean, plagues are, Andrew Sullivan wrote a really good piece. I don't I'm not in love with Andrew, everything Andrew Sullivan writes, but he wrote an excellent piece on plagues and the human reaction to plagues. It is very similar down through the ages. We all go nuts, you know, which we did. And the the um, uh, one of the things that really struck me was how a third of the population, I mean, the, when, during the bubonic plague, a third, fully a third, they estimate, of the world's pop- human population died during that. And what happened was 
But in the aftermath, the it was the end surf of the of of the feudal community because people moved into towns looking for jobs. They formed guilds. It was the creation of the middle class. Look at what is happening right now in America. A million people have died of COVID. More dying every day. Let's not forget. Okay. And things just heating up in China, too. It's going to be even way worse there, I'm pretty sure. And so you have more jobs and you have people to fill them. And people are being better paid now than they were before. A lot of them. I won't say all of them. Um, And people are able to pick and choose between jobs that they don't want to do, that they have to just for the money, and jobs that they do want to do and can do for the money. So um, that was what I, it was the black plague that more informed what I was writing about in the flu pandemic. I actually didn't read John Barry's book until 2020, or I actually didn't buy John Barry's book until 2020, which is called The Great Influenza. That's about the flu epidemic 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, but I read a book, um, and this also doesn't inform the book of 2012. And 2012, I'm sorry, Andrew, I'm, you know, now I'm speaking from the perspective now. Right, Sorry. Right. But this, let me also point out that um, there's a book written by another Alaskan writer. Her name's Deb Vanass. And I can't remember the title of the book, but it's a biography of Kate Carmack, who was, uh, what was his name? Joe Carmack's? Joe Carmack? Uh, he was the guy who started the, uh, found the gold and started the Alaska, the Klondike Rush. And she died of the flu. She didn't get it until two years after the first case of Spanish flu had been diagnosed and died of it a year after that. The toilets in the refrigerators being ripped out of people's homes yeah, as but, people were lying in bed and were too sick. I mean, those details. I looked up everything I could about um, the the about the flu pandemic in um, Alaska. I looked up everything that I could. And there there was plenty. Um. I, I did. I, I tried to crowdsource some questions. I did throw it out, uh, to, you know, to some folks that I thought might have read everything you've written, saying, "Hey, can you help me? Can you uh, think of some good questions from the entire, you know, all thirty plus books?" Um, and one question that uh, came from Gretchen Wimhoff was, "Ask her about uh, editors. Uh, you having to teach editors about Alaska specific things." And God. how about yeah. just the flame zone? How about, how about just the time zone? The very, yeah. very first call I ever got from manager was 4 a.m. in the morning. It was 8 a.m. in New York. Right. And he was like, you know, I mean, I'm I'm barely, I can't even hardly. I said, I said, Laura Ann, it's 4 a.m. Oh, I'm so sorry. She said, I'll call back later. And I said, oh, later. And I know. God, I mean, it, from simple things like that. Yeah. I mean, um, I had an agent. I was, like I told you about the sending out the, the before I sold my first book, sending out um, manuscripts to agents in New York. I got an answer, a letter, an actual letter, written, typed, actual letter from an agent. It's a real thing that I held in my hand and that I read. I want to stress that. And he said, your book sounds wonderful, Dana. I'd love to represent you. Unfortunately, I only represent American authors. Oh. My hand to God. Yes. <laughs> Wow. So, I, yeah, there, it was constantly stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we've all, it's, it's you know, love her or hate her. Sarah Palin put Alaska on the map in a way that we never were before. And we get, uh, because of her, because it, 
because of her, we now have stories in the New York Times regularly about Alaska. They wrote a story about the Ammonic Women's Shelter, you know, the only women's shelter in the YK Delta. And I mean, I didn't know it was there. <laughs> so, I mean, it, you, like I said, love her or hate her, we have to be, we have to acknowledge that people know more and understand more about Alaska than ever before because of her. Before we're getting towards the end, I do want to talk just briefly about your latest uh, book, uh, The Theft of an Idol, which is a completely different setting. You've mentioned it a few times today. Uh, ancient Egypt, Alexandria, Cleopatra. Um, I guess what I'd like for you to do is, um, I guess, give a little commercial to your fans. Happy to. <laughs> yeah, about why they should, uh, if they loved you for everything Alaska, how can they um, jump into ancient Egypt? Okay. First of all, Andrew, I want to point out to you that I've written a book set on Mars. Never been there either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I just had to be a smart ass for a second there. Um, yeah. Um, I've always been interested in Cleopatra. When I babysat for Darlene Kashgarov in Seldovia, uh, long, long ago and far away, I was a teenager in high school, she had some final recordings of Shakespeare plays, and one of them was Antony and Cleopatra. And I remember listening to that, and I mean, I was just enthralled by the character of Cleopatra. So, I mean, there wasn't a hell of a lot in the Soldovia Public Library, yeah, Cleopatra, but I never lost the interest. And then um, I there was a, an exhibit that was sort of a revolutionary, it took a kind of a revolutionary different look at Cleopatra. She's not necessarily the femme fatale, more sinned against than sinning. And it was at the Field Museum in Chicago. And Alaska Airlines had just started flying direct nonstop from Anchorage to Chicago. So I went. <laughs> and I still have the book from that, uh, the exhibit book. Big, I mean, you know, it's it's marginal locations and highlighting and dog earring and sticky noted to a fairly well. And I thought, okay, that this is it was just, it was so it was fascinating to me the way that they put things more into context and looked at her more as if she was an absolute human being instead of this you know, demonized figure created by historians in the time of Octavius who had a huge axe to grind. And then, um, and I still was looking at stuff about Cleopatra. I wasn't doing it slavishly. I was busy doing other stuff as well. I never thought at that point that I could write a book about um, that time and place. And then Stacey Schiff wrote her biography of Cleopatra, A Life. And the thing that struck me most about that biography was there's a whole page about women in Alexandria at that time, at that pre-Roman time. It's astonishing. I mean, women could, they could hold jobs. They could own businesses. They could marry where they pleased. They could keep the kids if they got divorced. They could get divorced. They could get alimony. They had, unbelievably, rights during that time. And in the meantime, across the Mediterranean, the Roman women, you know, are stuck in the house, raising the kids, cooking dinner and, you know, weaving linen for shrouds, which they would be buried in when they were bored to death, in my opinion. And I thought, OK, I can create. And at that moment, full blown, like from the, from the brow of Zeus, the character of Teta Sherry be, uh, appeared. And I thought, OK, undoubtedly, every ruler has a hatchet, man. Mine's going to be a hatchet woman. It's going to be something that goes back to the first Ptolemy. 
She's got to be a woman. There are going to be, have been women who held this office before her. We're going to kill off the present one. She's going to be brought in by Cleopatra, who's and, as, and there's this whole thing about rulers as well. I'm going to be inarticulate again and go on forever. But the, they're, rulers are lonely people. They're only so people who in charge, uh, you, nobody ever tells them the truth unless they actively seek out that person. And my Cleopatra is one such. And she reaches out to this person that she has known since she was a child, whom she trusts absolutely, who may be the only person who she does trust absolutely, and taps her for this job. I'm just having so much fun writing these books, I can't even begin to tell you. <laughs> Yo, it sounds it sounds great. And I want, um, you know, I kind of framed it as how you're going to get your Alaskan readers to read it. But I'm wondering... Um, are you picking up a new population of readers? Because I know that a lot of people love ancient Egypt. And so I think there's probably a population of readers out there that you're... And they, they probably, they, I, you know, some of the faithful has, have come along to the, the Eye of Isis novels, but I don't expect them all to. I'm starting a new series here. I remember how hard it was to get people to start reading a new series every time I started one. And um, it's just, it's going to take a while. I was talking to my editor at Head of Zeus in uh, London, and he said it has been his experience with historical series that the readership really starts to pick up between the third and the fourth books. And I just published the third one. And interesting that you should say, are, have I seen new people? I'm getting new names show up all the time in my social media and on my website. So I, fingers crossed, that I um, that it's going to eventually be um, I've you know I'd be lovely if it would be as much of a success as the Kate Chugak novels I'm not holding out that much hope right and um, I guess for those who do love Kate uh, Chugak novels do you have you have a new one or your yeah um, yeah and not the one's dead um, it comes out on April 11th yeah. Well, congratulations, and thank, thank you so you. much for all of the books, all of, um, you know, I, I, I'm just going to throw it out there. In your interview with um, um, Hometown Alaska, you said that you were an economic driver for Alaska, that people came to Alaska because they read your book. Me. Not just you, but Alaska writers in general. Correct. Yes, thank you. But, yeah. um, and so I want to thank you for that. Thank, thank you for being. Thank you for being an economic. I have, I you know, and I'm not just saying that. I'm not just making that bad, that stuff. I have people. I mean, people have come up to me in Captain Patty's at the end of the Spit in Homer. They stopped me at Safeway in Homer, and in you know, and they have said to me, they have come to Alaska because they have read my books. And if that's true for me, Andrew, that's true for Nick Jans. It's true for Seth Kanner. It's true for. Uh, it's true for all of us. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I mean, I'll just volunteer. I came here because of a book. This is kind of embarrassing and kind of, you know, but I came here yes. Into the Wild by John Clackamore, yeah. um, which, you know, not a life that you want to emulate, no. but, <laughs> but, um, but it is, it, you know, I read it in college and thought, huh, maybe I want to go to Alaska. So, and here I am. So and I wanted to say congratulations on uh, winning mm -hmm. your election. Thank you so much. Go forth to Juno and do good things. Thank you so much. We'll have a wonderful, happy new year. You and too. We'll stay in touch. Okay, sounds good. Big thanks to Corey Coolidge for making this podcast listenable. Please check out his website, anchoragelife.net, and his YouTube channel, also called Anchorage Life. 
And thank you to you, our listeners. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Thank you.